All right. Well, today we're continuing in the uh, book of Amos, and today we're going to be going through most of chapter 5. So if you are one of those that you like to follow along in the Bible, as we go through things, uh, we're going to be in Amos uh, chapter 5. And for those that uh, might be with us, and this is your first time with us, or you haven't been with us for a while, uh, just a reminder who Amos was. Amos was a prophet. He was from the kingdom of Judah. Uh, he was active around 250 years before Christ. Uh, it was a time when the, the kingdom of Israel, the, Israel, the land, was split into two. There was a northern kingdom and a southern kingdom. The northern kingdom was called the kingdom of Israel. The southern kingdom was the kingdom of Judah. And uh, Amos is actually from Judah. But he goes up to the north, to the uh, northern kingdom, and he begins to preach and prophesy to the, uh, the king up in uh, the northern kingdom. And he was Jeroboam II. And this was a time, it's tough to be a prophet when you're a prophet in good times. And this was kind of what Amos was in, the situation he was in. He was in a time when both the kingdom of Israel and Judah were at their height of their economic prosperity, their, their influence in the region, their military strength. And so to come and to, and to have a message of you need to get your act together because the, the hand of the Lord is turning against you is hard to do when it seems like God is with you in all things, when everything's going great. And that's really the situation that he was preaching into when he comes and he talks to the, the King Jeroboam II. That they would look at their situation around them and say, what, what's your problem, Amos? God is obviously with us. If he weren't with us, then things wouldn't be going as great as they're going. And, you know, historically, human beings have a tendency to say God is with them whenever there's anything going on that they want to somehow find approval in. And... Historically, human beings can put together some things which don't, don't make a whole lot of sense. Very often, for example, in times of war, in times of conflict, that's when people will say, you know, God is with us. Regardless of whether or not it's a just, you know, war that you're involved in, because in that time of stress, we tend to want to believe God is with us in this action that we're taking. Uh, for example, and this is a little uncomfortable given our, our context, but in the Second World War, the uniform of the German soldier said, God is with us. And it was right over the eagle and the swastika. In the U.S., we put God, God we trust on our money to kind of maybe, maybe assuage some of our, uh, our uh, feelings about corporate greed. You know, well, hey, God is still with us. Radical Islam, they believe God is with them as they go around and blow up stuff in the name of Allah. And kind of on the other flip side of that, Judaism in Israel, the Jews often believe, you know, God is with us. This is our land. And so they'll build settlements into disputed areas, causing conflict because, hey, God is with us. On the religious scene, if you've ever run into Mormons, they'll tell you they're the true church. God is with them. Jehovah's Witnesses, which you run into these folks, if you just go down to the Hauptmann off here, they'll tell you that God is with them and only 144,000 are going to go to heaven. But the Catholic Church says, nope, God is with us. We're the true church. Everyone else is a heretic. But we really all know God is with us. But don't tell our Pentecostal brethren because they think they're the only ones with the Holy Spirit. This phrase, God is with us, it's got to be one of the most abused statements throughout history. And it really is kind of an example of where our brains really just don't 
look at the reality around us. Because when one considers the misery that humanity pours upon humanity in the world for the sake of land, for the sake of money, for the sake of natural resources, or with some sense of entitlement, when we consider that in our world today, the starvation, the war, the disease, the poverty, the suffering that takes place, pretty much for no other reason than human beings pile this upon other human beings. When we think about the, the abuse of children that's going on, the slaughter of the unborn, the abuse of the elderly, the marginalization of the poor, when we consider scamming people in God's name, which takes place, the idolatry of celebrity, the lip service of concern without any kind of backing action, when we see the pettiness, sometimes even viciousness, between those who claim to love God, sometimes in the same church, it leaves us to wonder, I think, why would God be with us? Why should he be with us? How, how are we as human beings any kind of a people that God would say, yeah, I want to be with them? And this is the question that Amos poses to the kings of Israel and to Judah. Because you remember your, your history from the Old Testament, the people of Israel, the, the, when we say people of Israel, we're including the northern kingdom and the southern kingdom, they believed that God was with them simply because he had chosen them. They were the chosen people. And Jesus runs into the same issue, especially in the Gospel of John, when he tells them, you know, they need to repent of their sin. They go, well, why should we? We're the children of Abraham. And Jesus says famously, before Abraham was, I am. It's this sense of entitlement that's leading the Jewish nation, the kingdom of Israel and Judah, into destruction. So Amos says this, Seek the Lord and live, or he will sweep through the house of Joseph like a fire. It's interesting he refers to the house of Joseph, not the house of Jacob, but the house of Joseph. It will devour, and Bethel will have no one to quench it. Bethel was a place of worship in the northern kingdom. You who turn justice into bitterness and cast righteousness to the ground. He who made the Pallades and the Orion, who turns blackness into dawn and darkness into day, who calls for the waters of the sea and pours them over the face of the land. The Lord is his name. He flashes destruction on the stronghold and brings the fortified city to ruin. You hate the one who reproves in court and despise him who tells the truth. You trample on the poor and you force him to give you grain. Therefore, though you have built stone mansions, you will not live in them. Though you have planted lush vineyards, you will not drink its wine. For I know how many are your offenses and how great your sins. You oppress the righteous and take bribes and you deprive the poor of justice in the courts. Therefore, the prudent man keeps quiet in such times for the times are evil. Seek good, not evil, that you may live. Then the Lord God Almighty will be with you, just as you say he is. Hate evil. Love good. Maintain justice in the courts. Perhaps the Lord God Almighty will have mercy on the remnant of Joseph. So as I already mentioned, it seemed like the people of Israel, they really felt that God had to be with them. It was a contractual obligation of God. He had to be with them. 
And they forgot that this covenant, this, this contract that was made with God was a two-way covenant. It wasn't just God is with us because of who we are. We happen to be born within the family of, of uh, Israel. But it's because there was this covenant of faith that's to go back and forth. In the Old Testament, it's clear that if the covenant is not maintained on both sides, then the covenant is void. But they overlooked that. Or they saw what they were doing. They managed to convince themselves it was within the will and within the heart of God. But it was not. And Amos is reminding them of this. Because they could not conceive that God's hand would ever be against them. Now they could look back in their history and they say, yeah, there were times there were some bad seeds. There was this guy named Korah that began to oppose Moses in the desert. And God provided an earthquake which killed off Korah and his followers. They could say, yeah, there, there are some bad you know, uh, examples, but we're so much more enlightened than that. We are so much more sophisticated than that. And the fact that they had disregarded the covenant of Moses mattered to God, but they didn't see it. The fact that they were idolaters mattered to God, but they didn't see it. You're probably familiar with the story in the Bible of the golden calf uh, when the Israelites were taken out of Egypt and they're in the desert and Moses goes up to the mountain to receive the Ten Commandments. And while he's gone under the leadership of Moses' brother Aaron, they, they manufactured this idol, this golden calf, which was actually a god from Egypt. So they were coming out of Egypt, but they went back to worshiping this Egyptian god. And if you know the story, Moses comes down and he smashes the Ten Commandments. He's angry with them. And, uh, and he makes them tear down the golden calf, grind it up into powder, and then drink the powder. He makes them mix the powder and drink it. Did you know that the kingdom of Israel rebuilt the golden calves? As crazy as that is, right? This is a major part of their history, that they worship this idol and, they, and the, Moses smashed uh, the Ten Commandments, ground up the calf, made them drink it. You would think this is a clear line that you do not cross again. But when the kingdom of Israel split into the northern kingdom and the southern kingdom, under a guy that is Jeroboam I, he was the king of the northern kingdom. The king of Judah was the son of Solomon. His name was Rehoboam. The king of the northern kingdom did not, he was concerned that people would go back to the southern kingdom to worship because Jerusalem was in Judah. So he wanted to set up places to worship in the northern kingdom. And the scripture tells us this. It says this, after seeking advice, the king, which is Jeroboam the first, he's not the father of the Jeroboam the second, but he's Jeroboam the second is like the second that carries that name. After seeking advice, the king made two golden calves. And he said to the people, it's too much for you to go to Jerusalem. Here are your gods, O Israel, who brought you out of Egypt. One he set up in Bethel. And so this is why you hear Amos referring to Bethel. And one he set up in Dan, which is a territory up there. And this thing became a sin. And the people went as far as Dan to worship the one there. They did it again. Isn't that crazy? And how they justify it. When they knew this was a huge part of their story. Of the Exodus. He sets up two golden calves. And you know what? You can still go to this place. 
in Dan. Cindy and I went there when we were in Israel. It still exists, the, the place they set up these things. And then eventually the Israelites in the north began to even sacrifice their children to foreign gods. They had been blessed with so much. I mean, they had through the hand of God overcome overwhelming odds to escape being slaves in Egypt. They had overcome overwhelming odds to settle in the land of Israel, which wasn't vacant. It was full of people. If you read the Old Testament, they had to go in and they had to, to take the land. And yet now they're the ones who are worshiping idols, who are enslaving others, who are stepping on the poor in order to gain financially. Amos says, now you live in stone mansions. What he's referring to there is you're living like the Egyptians used to live. You're denying justice. And now you're worshiping the gods of the Egyptians all over again. And yet they thought God was with them. And they looked forward to the day when God's justice would burst upon the entire world and elevate them above all peoples. And they would reign in the name of God. That sound kind of familiar to some modern day Christianity as we look forward to the second coming of Christ? And yet this is what Amos tells them. Woe to you who long for the day of the Lord. Why do you long for the day of the Lord? That day will be darkness, not light. It will be as though a man fled from a lion only to meet a bear. As though he entered his house and rested his head on the wall only to have a snake bite him. Will not the day of the Lord be darkness, not light, pitch dark without a ray of brightness? And the reason why it's going to be dark for Israel is because they are away from the heart and will of God. And yet they are not willing to acknowledge how far they have drifted from the heart of God. Because without a common heart, God finds worship, God finds giving, God finds sacrifice, and God finds anything else done for him to be repugnant. It's disgusting to him. Which is what Amos goes on to say. He says, I hate, I despise your religious feasts. I cannot stand your assemblies. Even though you bring me burnt offerings and grain offerings, I will not accept them. Though you bring me choice fellowship offerings, I have no regard for them. Away with the noise of your songs. I will not listen to the music of your harps, but let justice roll like a river, righteousness like a never failing stream. That last line there, it's if you know anything about U.S. history during the civil rights, Amos was one of the main uh, scripture sources that Martin Luther King Jr. used because he pointed to the church that was full of racism and hate and used this. And one of his famous speeches ends with, let justice roll like a river, righteousness like a never failing stream. Because even though this was written 750 years before Christ, human hearts are still dark. And we can still, in the name of God, sin and be apart from the heart of God. 
So then the question then is, well, who does God delight to be for? Because we know that God is with us is a kind of, is a biblical kind of concept. It's a biblical phrase. Be strong and courageous for the Lord your God is with you wherever you go. So who is it that God delights to be for? Does he have a favorite nationality? Does he have a favorite race? Does he have a favorite gender? What about a favorite uh, economic status? Does God love the rich more than he does the poor? Does he love the poor more than the rich? You know, there's actually a theology called liberation theology, which teaches, comes out of the Catholic Church, teaches that God loves the poor and doesn't love the rich. Is that true? Who is it God loves? Who is it God delights to stand with? God delights to stand with the people who have a common heart with him, common values with him, common hope. Micah, who was a prophet, said this, With what shall I come before the Lord and bow down before the exalted God? Shall I come before him with burnt offerings, with calves a year old? In other words, sacrifices. Will the Lord be pleased with thousands of rams and 10,000 rivers of oil. Shall I offer my firstborn for my transgression, the fruit of my body for the sin of my soul? Is that what God wants? And Micah says, you don't need to ask these questions. He has shown you, oh man, what is good. And what is it the Lord requires of you? To act justly, to love mercy, and to walk humbly with your God. Jesus puts it this way. In the Gospel of John, he says, Whoever has my commands and obeys him, he is the one who loves me. And he who loves me will be loved by my Father. And I too will love him and show myself to him. I am the vine, you are the branches. If a man remains in me and I in him, he will bear much fruit. Apart from me, you can do nothing. All these passages speak in different terms of having a common heart with God. Having a, having a shared desire with God. A shared will. A shared hope. Jesus talks about it in the sense of being united with him. Whoever has my commands and obeys them. In other words, it's not just in your head, but it's who you are. He's the one who loves me. It's not enough to say to Jesus, we love you, Lord, and then act outside of Christ's character. And this is what often happens within the church throughout history. We will say we worship God, but we act outside of the character of God. We worship God, but we don't really care about the will of God. We care about our will. And this is the kind of heart where God says, you know, I'm not really with you on that. It's not that he doesn't love us, but he's like, I'm not with you on that. Jesus talks about it remaining in him like a vine, like the, the, the branch of the vine remains in the, in the stalk, in the root. Remain in me. If you remain in me and I in him, the shared vision, the shared hope, the shared values, the shared will, then your life will bear much fruit. But apart from him, it's nothing. You know, God is not impressed with 
how well we can play music. I love playing music for the Lord. I'm going to be leading worship next week. But he's not impressed with our ability. He doesn't listen to us for our musical uh, proficiency. He's looking for the heart of worship. In fact, that's a song that is often sung. He's not impressed with what we give. Sometimes we think, oh, I'm giving my tithe and I'm being good and God's got... God doesn't really need our money. He just wants to see how much we are willing to trust him. Are we willing to walk within his will? And in the New Testament, you go away from even the, the, the specific thing of being a tithe of 10%. It's really this place of, hey, whatever you can do with joy. But the expectation is people tend to go, okay, well, that means I can be joyful at 2%. That's not really where the scripture is going with that. The scripture is going with, is your joy greater? But we're not going to put a number on it. But where is, where is your joy? We have a tendency to want to have God on our side, believe God is with us, but we don't want to be with him. But that can change. Because there are those who have a heart that seeks after God. And that's the kind of people I believe that we want to be. We want to be a people where God directs us as individuals and as a church to be in the place of where his heart is, where his will is. Now, of course, it doesn't mean we are able to do this with perfection, but this is where grace comes in. But grace is abused when we go into the place of sin, fully expecting that we are going to be outside the will of God, but we're going to do it anyway because his grace will cover us. We're no better than the, the church back in the time of Luther, which was selling indulgences where people were allowed to buy the right to sin. For us to go into sin saying, well, I'm going to go ahead and sin because I know God's going to forgive me. That's the same attitude. It's just you're not, even, you're not even buying the indulgence. You're just relying on what you think is going to be grace. But in that place of true humility and true repentance, in our daily living where we let justice roll like a river, where righteousness like a never-failing stream, not from ourselves, but from God, from our relationship with Christ, from the power of the Holy Spirit, within our lives, then he will be with us. He'll be with us in our prayers. He'll be with us as we seek to reach out to the world around us. As we share Christ, as we want to be salt and light within the world around us, he will be with us because we'll be with him. And that's the important thing, to be with him. Amos had hard words for the kingdoms of Israel and Judah. And when we read Amos, I don't know about you, but, you know, those folks that say, well, we're so much for, you know, the Bible's no longer relevant because we're so much more evolved as a society and as people than they were back then. And then I read Amos and go, my goodness, are we? Are we really? When we have people in Turkey that are not receiving aid from their government because they're Kurds. The government is, is, is in, intentionally not bringing aid there because they're Kurds. In Aleppo, where that terrible earthquake hit, there's no aid going to that area from Syria because that was the area which, which was the center of the rebellion against the Syrian government, which was gassed. The government gassed these people, dropped barrel bombs on these people. And I'm sure many have interpreted the earthquake in that area saying, well, there you go. God is with us.
This is where, as Christians, we need to be willing to step out into the world and be something different than the machinery of the world. To have different values. And it's so hard to, to break, to be countercultural, to step in a place which is different than the world. And this is why we have false teachings in the church, like the prosperity gospel and the health and wealth gospel, because it sinks into that, it sinks up with that greedy, sinful part of our life that justifies the idea that pastors need to have private jets and justifies that churches need to be modern day temples of Solomon while all around them, a world is starving. And is under injustice. We're not that different. Not we, we, but we have our own issues to work through. But as human beings, we haven't really progressed a whole lot in the last 3,000 years. When it comes to how we treat one another. How we regard God. What it means that God is with us. And the unique thing about Christ is God showed that he was with us in suffering. You know, when Christ died on the cross, the Apostle Paul says, this is just foolishness to the Greeks. The Greeks look at this and say, how would a God be willing to give of himself instead of just give to the God? It was completely against the way they understood the world. That's why the Apostle Paul says, to the Greeks, the cross is foolishness. But to those who believe, it is the power of salvation. And so if God was willing to enter into our suffering in order to bring us hope, then as people of Christ, this is the attitude that we need to go into our world with. Not that we need to seek out suffering, but to go into it with humility, knowing that there is more that we're living for than our bank accounts, more than we're living for than our job titles, more than that we're living for then everything going our way and looking at everything going our way is proof that God is with us. So may we be willing to, as individuals, look hard at how we are living in our faith, how we are approaching our faith, maybe very consciously, but also unconsciously. Where are we in this place of thinking God is with us, even though we are outside the character of God? Where are we in the place of thinking God is with me, even though I'm outside the will of God? And as a church as well, this is something we have to always keep in mind. Where are we in those places as well? Because it is easy to fall back into these patterns. And Amos warns the nations of Israel and Judah, and in the word of God, that warning also transcends to us. May we be a people who are truly within the will and heart of God, salt and light. In Jesus' name. Let's pray. Father God, we thank you for your word. Thank you for the, the truth that is in it. Sometimes a hard truth. And guys like Amos that just, you know, took no prisoners, spoke with boldness, pointed out the areas where we were out of step. Certainly where the king of Israel is out of step, the king of Judah is out of step, and where we can also potentially be out of step. Not saying that, you know, not making some big judgmental thing that we are, but you can judge us on that. And we do pray. Convict our hearts as individuals as an, and as a church. That we know where to be in step with you, where we're a little bit out of step, maybe where we're way out of step.
so that we can say with conscious, a clear conscience and with an assurance in our hearts that you are with us because we are with you. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.